How do you see this old world? Oh, how do you soak it all in? Oh, where did you come from and why are you here? And what does it all really mean? Am I just here to make money? Or die in the vain quest for peace? How can I find out if there's truth in the world? Or shall I just live as I please? I've been told that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only life worth living here today. I've been told that Jesus is the truth at all. Before this shall ceases to breathe Could it be Christ is my Savior He's proven himself in the past By walking on water and raising the dead Ascending triumphant at last Now I know that Jesus is the answer Jesus is the oftentimes talk about worship, but how often do we take the time to talk about the wrong kind of worship? Because we need to recognize that there is a type of worship that is pleasing to God. That's that type of worship that Jesus himself says that those who worship the Father will worship him in the spirit and in truth. He says that in John chapter four. But yet 
that also kind of indicates that there is a way in which we can still worship God that would just be wrong. And in this lesson, what I want us to do is I want us to take a look at a few passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament as well and learn some things from them. Kind of maybe you might want to say, in, instead of looking at this as, as wrong worship, we can maybe say that we're going to look at some problems to avoid, some different ways in which people have worshiped God or tried to worship God and they've just done the wrong thing. They weren't pleasing to God. One of the, the first things that I think that we've got to understand about worship in order for it to be pleasing to God is we, mu we must worship the right God. Now, this is the one true and the living God that we read about in the Bible. He's the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that lives in them. He's made everything. We've got to worship him. And I know that that sounds like that makes sense. And, you know, of, of course we do that. But, you know, any time that we kind of add things or subtract things from God's nature, we're kind of making God out to be however we want him to be. Whereas really what we should be doing is we should be reading the scriptures and seeing how God himself reveals these things about him and accept those things that he reveals about him. And to recognize that is our God that we worship. But we've got to have faith in this God. We've got to believe in this God. But you know, faith by itself is not really enough. Let's take a look at James chapter 2 here. In James chapter 2, verse 19, whenever James is talking about kind of the connection with, with faith uh, and uh, works, one of the things that he says about this faith is he says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, church, whenever we read this passage, we've got to realize that we must do better than the demons. I, I mean, the demons can believe that there is one God. Okay, that's all well and good. You know, it is good that you believe that. Congratulations. We've got to go beyond that because even the demons believe that and they shudder. What about us? Do we truly believe that there is one God? I think sometimes the way that we act kind of reveals that. Sometimes that we, we have a difficult time putting our faith in this one God and putting our uh, everyday trust in this one God. And that can reveal to us kind of our lack of faith in God and our lack of reliance upon God. Well, this struggle has been a long one throughout uh, the, the history of God's people. If you go back to Israel right after they they exited out of Egypt in the, the Exodus, in the book of Exodus. And they actually come to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, they are getting these commands of God. Uh, they get, of course, the Big Ten, which we call the, the Ten Commandments. And I want us to look at some of those Ten Commandments here. When we turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we get the, the starting of those Ten Commandments. And listen, this is what God commands. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So while Moses is up on the mountaintop receiving these commands of God, while these 
these very commands are being received. Do you remember what's happening down below at the bottom of the mountain? Israel has built a golden calf, and they're worshiping that golden calf. It's such a sad thing that, I mean, they couldn't even, they couldn't even make it to, to receive the commands of God before they're already breaking these things. And, and these things, you know, we can't just say, oh, well, you know, they just did that in ignorance. No, I mean, okay, you can say that they didn't receive this law yet. They knew that, though. This is just something that, that God is just clearly laying this out. He's already told them this before. It's clear throughout the book of Genesis that God is so powerful and he is worthy of our worship. And this golden calf, it, it shows us about this idolatry that sadly it continued throughout Israel. Uh, and also it continued in, in, uh, in Israel throughout the, uh, just about all of the history of Israel. But it also carried over into other nations too. In fact, really, I would say that most of the time, other nations were even worse than Israel about worshiping uh, different idols and things that were not God. Well, idolatry even shows up in the New Testament. In fact, we get several different instances in which Paul and other of the apostles and other people of the early church, uh, they came face to face with people who were worshiping idols. How did they respond to that? Let's take a look at one passage from the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17, and this is Paul in Athens. Now, among other things, you know, we, we get before this that he actually uh, was, was traveling through this land and he was seeing all these idols. And he talks about that here. Uh, we read in verse 22 through and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I think there's so much wisdom that we can learn from Paul's response here. What we can see is that, that Paul doesn't, doesn't really uh, so much condemn this behavior at first that, that they uh, are no longer listening to him. Now, is he... Uh, is he in favor of this type of behavior? No, obviously. He doesn't want them to worship idols. But what he's trying to do is he's, he's trying to give them some little bit of positive things. Because when someone is worshiping an idol, that does at least show us that they recognize there is someone or something greater than them. And that's at least what Paul is able to say to these people. You know, instead of just, just coming into this group and just saying, oh, well, you're wrong. Because if that's all that he had done, they would have been done with it. Because they don't know, uh, really, they don't even know the history about Israel. Uh, much less, they don't know about Jesus Christ. And they don't know about any of these things. So Paul is opening up this door by saying, look, I see you're religious. I see you've got these idols everywhere that you're worshiping. But then let me tell you about this unknown God. He took, he took that opportunity to be able to, to take something from from their culture, something from their experiences, and to be able to build on that and to recognize, look, you don't know this God. Let me tell you about this God. And Paul says a lot of great things about this God and really teaches how powerful he is and what he commands of people today. He gets into that later in this sermon. So let's, let's look at uh, some of those verses together. Let's look at verses 28 through 31. 
Now, this is Paul talking about God still within the sermon. And, and Paul says, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So this is kind of at the, the end of, of Paul's sermon. And he says that, you know, look, God is not just some image that we have to set up and that we have to make. He says that in verse 29, you know, God is not an image made by human design and skill. So he really, right here, he does condemn idolatry. And he tells him it's not about this image. What is the image of God? Go back to the book of Genesis. When you go back to the book of Genesis, what you will see is that Adam and Eve, they are made in the image of God. See, we are the image of God. That's why we are commanded not to make an image of God because God has already made an image of himself. You and I are this image of God. Now, in the past, in verse 30, we see that in the past, God overlooked some of this ignorance. He overlooked some of this, this, uh, this misunderstanding about his nature and all. But things are different now. That's what Paul says. If things were different during Paul's day, don't you think that they're still different today? In the sense of now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, what does that look like? And, and how, how are we assured of this? Well, we're assured of this just like what they are assured of it by. In verse 31, we see that there is going to be a day of judgment. There is going to be a day in which Jesus, who was raised from the dead, this is proof that uh, he is going to judge. But there's also proof that, that uh, we need to repent as well, um, just like the people of, of, of their day there with Paul. We need to be people who recognize this proof that God has given us. God has given us this proof by raising Jesus from the dead. There will be a time in which all the world will be judged. And it's not enough just to say, oh, well, you know, I didn't know any better. No, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. And this repentance is the same type of repentance that even Jesus himself called for. If you look at Mark chapter 7, you'll see one of many occasions where Jesus calls for the same type of repentance here. In Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, we read, So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So Jesus himself, what he said about the people of his day is he was actually repeating Isaiah's call to repent. He uses even the words of Isaiah here to show them that they needed to repent. See, during Isaiah's day, he recognized that, the, that those people during Isaiah's day we're just honoring God with their lips. They looked good. It looked like it was great, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They were actually worshiping in vain. I mean, look at that in verse seven. If you want to know about uh, the fact that we can 
worship God the wrong way, where we can worship wrong, we see that we can worship in vain because that's what they were doing during, during Isaiah's day. And their teachings were just human rules. That's why in, in verse eight, Jesus was, was echoing these words that Isaiah said. Isaiah recognized that during his day, people were just teaching whatever man was saying rather than what God was saying. And they weren't worshiping God as they should be. And Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. I hope that that won't be said of us. But this is a very real thing that we've got to be concerned about in the sense of we've got to make sure that, that we don't fall into the same category. We have to make sure that we are worshiping God in the spirit and in truth, that we are worshiping God with our hearts and our lips. All of this is so important. Well, Jesus repeated Isaiah's words, but you know, there's other prophets as well who said things very similar to this. In fact, the prophet Malachi, he goes so far as to say this. Let's take a look at it together in Malachi 1. Verses 10 and 11, in, uh, in Malachi's day, uh, he is actually saying what, what God is saying, but, but God says this during the days of Malachi. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not and I will accept no offering from your hand. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. And every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So here at this time, during, during Malachi's day, um, yes, we, we saw in the previous slide that during Isaiah's day, people were worshiping God in vain. Now, also in Jesus's day, they were worshiping God in vain as well. They were just focused so much on what humans say rather than what God says. And here in Malachi, God, so, God goes so far as to say in verse 10 that he just wishes that one of them would shut the temple doors. Is that really what God wanted? Did God really want them to shut the temple doors? Of course not, because God wanted the temple. He wanted his people to worship him in the, temp the, in the temple. So why would he say such a things that he just wants one of them to shut the temple doors? The reason is what they were doing wasn't really even worship. They were completely abusing what the temple was supposed to be about. So yeah, I mean, in one sense, God did want them to shut the temple doors, but that's not his true desire. His true desire was that they would come to him, but these people were refusing to come to him. They were refusing to accept his great and wonderful name that we get in verse 11. We honor that same name today. We must honor that same name today. I hope that we wouldn't have to repeat the words of Malachi and, and kind of say that, you know, that God would want to just shut the doors of our churches because we're not doing right within them. Are we doing what we need to be doing? We need to, to heed this warning. We, we need to avoid the same type of problem that they were doing. They were abusing this worship of God. Let's do better. This struggle that Israel had. It was one that, that was almost always present. It, it was kind of almost uh, always a possibility that they might fall away and become like what, 
what they were during Malachi's day. Even in the New Testament times, uh, they were they were oftentimes messed up and they were they were dealing with this struggle of just worshiping God wrong. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, he says this about his own people, the Israelites. Romans 10 verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Notice these things that Paul says. He recognizes that, that what his desire is, is that his fellow Israelites would be saved. That's what Paul wanted. That's what God wanted. That's what Jesus wanted as well. They all wanted this salvation. They all wanted this deliverance to come to especially the people of God, these Israelites. But Paul recognized something of his day. In verse 2, he said, yeah, they're zealous for God, but zeal by itself isn't going to produce the correct type of worship. In fact, he says that, that zeal, uh, their zeal was not based on knowledge. What did he mean by that? He meant that they weren't accepting Jesus Christ. I mean, look at verses three and four. What you see is that they weren't going after the righteousness of God. They were trying to establish their own. They were trying to focus on what the humans were saying, what man was saying, rather than what God had already said. They weren't submitting to God's righteousness, and they weren't recognizing what was right in front of them, and that is that Christ is the culmination of the law. That means that he is the, the pinnacle. He is the absolute top. He's what everything in the law was pointing toward. It was Jesus Christ. That is how we can submit to God's righteousness, is by submitting to the way of Christ. Paul kind of puts it this way, and he tells us what our goal is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 from Romans 12. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's let this passage be a description of how we worship God. Let's offer up our bodies, our lives, as a living sacrifice, one that is holy, one that is pleasing to God, because this is what true and proper worship is all about. Let's not focus so much on the things of this world. Let's not focus so much on what man has said. Man can be very helpful to each other. You know, yes, we can encourage one another. We can help each other out but only whenever we are helping each other out by what God has already said. We've got to be transformed by this renewing of our mind, and we have to see what God's will is, and let's follow that. His will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. That's God's will, and this is what our worship needs to look like. I believe we can do this, but it takes effort. This is our goal. And we have to work at this every single day of our lives so that we will be this living sacrifice and give true and proper worship to God Almighty. Holy Father, Holy Father, Holy Father.
Redeemed, I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 